Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Perry Class will join us to discuss a good time to be born. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, through the advances in modern medicine and public health, childhood mortality has largely been relegated to an issue of the past. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Perry Klass. Dr. Klass is a professor of journalism and pediatrics at New York University, co-director of NYU Florence, and national medical director of Reach Out and Read. She writes a weekly column, The Checkup, for the New York Times and has written numerous novels and non-fiction books for a general audience. Her most recent release is entitled A Good Time to be Born, How Science and Public Health Gave Children a Future. And she joins us today to discuss this very fast for a general audience. And Dr. Klass, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. I'm so glad to be here. Well, timely book you've written here, A Good Time to Be Born. And we should really talk about how advances in medicine, public health, have reshaped our society and why decide to put this book together. I'm a pediatrician by training, and I trained in the 1980s. And by the time I was training in Boston in the 1980s, Children's deaths, almost all of them, were not supposed to happen. They were supposed to be preventable. There were rare and terrible tragedies, of course, but there was no such thing as the idea that, well, a certain percent of children just don't make it. And what I realized was that as recently as my grandmother's day, as recently as, say, when my parents were being born in the 1920s, in the early part of the 20th century, in the city of New York, in big cities everywhere, That was just part of being a parent. If you went around a table and you asked, almost everyone would have lost a child, lost a sibling, lost a good friend, because so many infants and children died. And it was not a routine thing in any way. It was a terrible thing in a tragedy, but it was a predictable, expected part of the experience of being a parent. And this really was an issue that had no boundaries. The rich, the poor, everyone was susceptible to some type of situation which could affect childhood mortality. Well, you know, it's always better to be rich than to be poor. So it's probably true that infant and child mortality was generally higher among the poor and generally higher in more disenfranchised minority groups, generally higher among poor immigrants. But that's not 100% true because, for example, one of the things which is most likely to drive down infant mortality is mothers breastfeeding their own babies. So you might have a population or a situation in which wealthier, more prosperous families are less likely to be nursing their own children. And it's a complicated dynamic, but what's definitely true, and something that I return to again and again in the book, 
is that wealth and power didn't protect you. As my grandmother herself would probably have said, even if you were the president of the United States of America, even if you were John D. Rockefeller himself, you couldn't protect your children, you couldn't protect your grandchildren. This was such a expected part of life, of living, of having children. It really shaped how societies were formed. And once that went away, paved the way for a whole different future. I'm saying that I can necessarily tell you exactly how it changes the experience of being a parent, but it certainly changes the experience of being a parent. Clearly, it changes the experience of being a pediatrician if every sore throat might be hysteria, and that's something which kills a certain number of children every year. If you go into the experience of being a parent, knowing this clearly has a tremendous effect. And the other thing that happens, which I think is really interesting, is that everybody handles this in different ways. So there are there are plenty of parents in centuries past who never get over it. It happens. It's common. People say to you, you have to pull yourself together. You have to get over it. Or this was a decision made by higher powers and you have to accept it. But a certain number of people are really destroyed. A certain number of parents, this is a very sad, very hard thing. And I thought it was really interesting. One of the questions I ask in the book is, so if parents uh, at the end of the at the beginning of the 21st century, at least in in countries where there's good sanitation and relatively wealthy populations, if they are so much safer and their children are so much safer than in all the centuries past, why are we still so anxious as parents? Well, one of the questions I wanted to ask was, how much does the anxiety that we all feel as connect to the actual statistics and how much is it perhaps just a flip side of how much your child means to you and what the experience of being a parent does to you. It's sort of counterintuitive. If death is perhaps more common, you, you might be more accepting and perhaps a little more lenient with monitoring one's children, whereas if it's not as common, then you become a little more anxious about it. Well, I think there's a lot to be said for that point of view. And I, the other thing which I try to argue in the book is that because the world actually is objectively so much safer for the children growing up in these populations at the end of the 20th and the 21st century, parents can let themselves believe that if they do everything right and make all the right decisions and the right choices and they buy the right car seat and they, you know, they do everything correctly, they can believe that their children will live to grow up. But there's a flip side to that, which means that it's actually your responsibility to keep them absolutely safe. And I don't think that my grandmother believed that she could make the world safe. She knew the world was not safe. She knew the world was dangerous. I'm sure it was scary and I'm sure it was anxious. But I don't think she felt that she was making decisions one after another. And if you just check the right box every time, you had some kind of guarantee. She knew there was no such guarantee. Do you think having more children survive until adulthood have changed the makeup of societies where now you have groups which never really experienced this situation of early childhood death and the threats aren't out there? Well, what many people in my field in pediatrics might say is, does this have something to do with the fact that there are many parents out there who don't really understand what a gift vaccines have been? People who are less afraid, people don't, parents don't lie awake at night 
worrying about diphtheria and saying to themselves, how fortunate I am to live in a world where there's a good vaccine against diphtheria, so I don't have to worry about that. We have one of the things I realized, and it was another one of the motivations in writing the book, we have a fairly short generational memory. There were some diseases that I've written about that were rare diseases, but they were around in the 1980s when I was doing residency. And now I worried about them every single day in the 1980s working in a children's hospital. I knew how terrible they were. And now we unite against them. And if you're training in medicine today, you know about them, but they don't scare you. They're not hovering there over your shoulder. And when I trained, polio was totally hovering over my shoulder. Smallpox wasn't hovering over my shoulder. Those were diseases that I had learned about from books, but they didn't scare me in the same way. And I think if you think about that, maybe you understand why for some parents nowadays, the terrible, terrible diseases, which we can so efficiently prevent with vaccines, become less scary. And they start worrying about the possibility of very rare side effects from the vaccines or the possibility of some, they can't even exactly say what that's scarier than the diseases because the diseases have just stopped being scary. Certainly with the current climate with COVID, do you think maybe that anxiety is shifting a little bit? People are beginning to appreciate the role of vaccines or is it still just something that's in the past? Oh, I think there are an awful lot of people out there and I would count myself among them who are hoping and praying and dreaming of vaccines to give us back our world and give our children back the childhood we wanted them to have. So I certainly think there are a lot of people out there now hoping and praying for a vaccine. But I think there we've also seen in polls that there are a lot of people out there who are suspicious or worried about a new vaccine or an experimental vaccine. You know, the message that I would like to come from this book, especially at this particular time, is a message about how resourceful we are as a species and the scientists, yes, and the doctors, yes, but also the people who think in terms of public health and sanitation and civic planning and also the parents, because I talk a lot in the book about the way that parents organize themselves or start to think about certain things, or especially in the 20th century, parents who do lose children often decide, I want there to be a law passed so that this will never happen to another family. And I think it's not, you know, the thing about this victory that we go from uh, an era at the beginning of the 20th century in which child mortality is still pretty common to an era at the end of the 20th century when it's rare, it's terrible, but it's comparatively rare. It's not one campaign. It's not the join the crusade and wipe out polio. That's one campaign. It's the it's collection of a lot of different ways of thinking and a lot of different avenues of experimentation and science and medicine and public health and parent advocacy. And I think that should be an inspirational message, that we are capable as a species of putting pieces together and solving incredibly complex, difficult problems and reduce the amount of pain and suffering that there is in the world. We did this here. We did this. We went from being a species in which rich or poor, wherever you were, you had to assume that a fair number of children wouldn't make it to being a species in which that's a much, much rarer fact of life. 
part of the concern must be giving up some of the gains we made. Not enough people getting vaccinated, diseases making a comeback. We sort of have to be ever vigilant to make sure that the advances we have made don't go away. Have to be ever vigilant, absolutely, because one of the things we've all learned all over again in the last six, seven, eight, nine months is that the world of viruses and bacteria is out there, interesting, intersecting with us in all kinds of ways and capable of surprising us. So we have to learn that. The other lesson that I think we have to learn is that you make the world safer. One of the ways you make the world safer is by thinking about equity, by saying this is not just about making my home absolutely safe. This is about looking around and are all the children in the community safe? Are all the children in the country? Are all the children in the world? How do we keep things, how do we extend the the safety that we've achieved? How do we think about this in a communal way? And I think that's one of the lessons that we're confronting over and over again in the pandemic. The other side of this, as you mentioned, the great public health measures that have advanced and been implemented. Part of that also requires community effort and everyone adhering to these types of measures. I think it is, it's, I think one of the ways you get here to this incredible victory where you've overcome. I mean, all through human history, the babies were dying, the children were dying. It went with the territory. If you go further and further back into history, before smallpox vaccination, before sanitation, you probably reach an era where, say, four out of every 10 babies born don't live to grow up. And in bad years, maybe a lot of babies and children, that's an awful lot of tragedy, that's an awful lot of sadness and suffering in families. And so... I think that thinking forward, you want to say, so it's not just my children, it's all our children. It's keeping everybody safe. It's thinking about keeping the community safe. And you do see that again and again in, in a lot of these stories, which are kind of inspirational. You see it if you go back and look at what happens with the polio vaccine and people sign up their children to try the new vaccine and see if it'll work, knowing that it's a trial, knowing that it's an experiment, knowing that half the children will get the vaccine and the other half won't. So you're sort of talking about people understanding that you're doing something great for children and families and everybody all together because especially infectious diseases, we really are all in this together. You've certainly been practicing medicine, pedi- pediatrics for a long time. What changes have you seen over the course of your career? And it's a good time to be born. Do you think that optimism really is present in the patients that you see? I don't know, but it's sure present in the pediatricians. We don't take this for granted. And one of the things that I was noticing when I, when I was writing them is, you know, you people who go into primary pediatrics nowadays, we expect our patients to all grow up and graduate from us. We expect them all to go on into, you know, to, to become adults and see adult doctors. And what an unbelievable luxury. We, you go into pediatrics because you like children. And then when you read the accounts, of people who took care of children in past times and had to deal with the summer diarrhea, which killed so many babies, or the diphtheria epidemic in which children's airways were closed off and they choked. And you read the sort of the sorrow and the misery and the helplessness that I think that um, it's not, I wasn't just thinking about this as a parent, although I'm a parent, I was also thinking about um, the way that my profession has changed and the the joy of being able to 
prevent infections instead of treating so many of them, and then also the luxury of therefore having time to talk to parents about how children develop, how children learn, how children grow, all of the things that you can talk about and that are trying to be so important to parents. Do you have pieces of advice for maybe the next generation of parents and the next generation of pediatricians? What would you like them to know and to take forward from experience and, and from your book? I'd like them to understand that this is a wonderful, lucky thing, that parents have always, always, always loved their children as far as I see. When I read ways that parents in the earlier centuries wrote about their children, I feel that I see the same love, I see the same emotion, I see the same passion for noting every detail of how the child grows and changes and develops. But we have this tremendous, tremendous luxury that we can protect ours our children from some of the sorrows which were just a standard part of parenthood in the past and that then I think the next step is to say if we can create this safety for some children it's our job to create it for all children and that will make the world that we want to live in. Well we were just talking with Dr. Perry Class. Her new book is entitled A Good Time to Be Born. How Science and Public Health Gave Children a Future. Dr. Class, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.